0: Hey everybody! It's your old friend John Deluna with another mini cast, returning guest star Bill Ray, famed author. Bill Ray, how are you doing today?
1: I'm doing great, John. Uh, it's way too hot here in Virginia, but other than that, it's it's uh it's been a good day. Ah, well, um,
0: I think most people would take that. That's on uh, balance. That's if that's the worst that's <laughs> happening right now. That's not so exactly. bad.
1: Exactly. I have air conditioning. We
0: um. We have known each other for a long time, uh, probably almost, you could almost say decades if we kind of added up like our uh, crossing paths at bot cons and such. But most of the viewers and listeners, I should say listeners, this is an old school podcast. We don't do that. Right. Uh, we do. Uh, we do radio. We do it well. Uh, most of the um, listeners aren't quite as familiar with. With, uh, with you as a person, one of the things, uh, in addition to, uh, to your writings, one of the things that you bring to the table that's very, uh, I would say, rare, if not unique I- in our circles, is you have a history when it comes to trademark and uh, the, the, the laws surrounding trademark and related phenomenon. And we thought that that was going to be a really good minicast for everyone, given that uh, third party is kind of a thing that's uh, been close to Transformers for over a decade now. Um, Bill, before I want to talk to you about uh, about trademark, and I know you've got a lot of great thoughts about trademark law. Uh, before we get into that for the for the minicast, uh, why don't you tell the listeners um, a little bit about your background and kind of where you're going to be coming from uh, with, your, with your thoughts uh, on this episode. And then after that, I've got a couple of interesting statistics and factoids, and then we will dive right in.
1: Sounds great. Well, so right now I'm, I'm writing fantasy novels, but uh, before that, I did have, in fact, a real job. Uh, <laughs> and I am, in fact, an attorney. Uh, I'm not the only attorney. Uh, there are plenty of other uh, attorneys, in fact, several I've spoken to that are actually intellectual property attorneys in the Transformers fandom, uh, but we're, we're definitely a minority of the group. Uh, my uh, I graduated uh, from Wake Forest uh, School of Law. I'm licensed in the state of Maryland. Uh, my background has been Uh, all over the place in in terms of intellectual property. I worked for a law firm. I've uh, been in-house doing intellectual property work for some major corporations. uh, And I even worked for the Patent and Trademark Office as a researcher on their their trademark side for a little while too. So uh, intellectual property is, is kind of the area of law I've practiced the most and so that that is something I, I tend to know a bit about and uh, you, you mentioned trademark but it, it's actually a little more multifaceted than that and uh, so I'll, I'll get into that uh, in just a little bit when we start talking about that so I think it's a it's an area that's pretty complicated uh, uh, particularly for the layman where a lot of the you see a lot of the terms bouncing around and and a lot of people use them uh, incorrectly and interchangeably incorrectly <laughs> and it can get very confusing i'm sure so uh yeah uh but as you said by my, my background I've, I've done uh work for microsoft nike Marriott hotels uh, i work for sarah lee who also wow. owns haynes corporation and hmm. uh, uh, a number of other places um and so I, I've done, a, I actually wrote a contract that was signed by Michael Jordan. So wow, <laughs> so nice. I've cool. done a fair amount of, of, of intellectual property work. So this, this cool. is a topic I can I can at least discuss on uh, with, you know, almost as much authority as, as I can discuss, you know, the latest episode of Cyberverse. So <laughs> um,
0: <laughs> so before we uh, dive into kind of just, or just like opening the doors to, to IP and all that, I did want to... Throw a couple facts out there. So as most of you guys are aware, if you're listening to this podcast, third party, uh, that being uh, unlicensed in, 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 in our definition, broad definition of what we're going to talk about today, uh, when we say third third party or when I say third party, it's, uh, it's basically, we're basically referring to accessories and, and fully transformable uh, toys, robots that are uh, unlicensed. Uh, not endorsed by Hasbro or Takara in any way, but certainly heavily reflect um, Hasbro and Takara-owned intellectual property. And that has been something that has been here with us, like I said earlier, for over a decade. And uh, and it started off um, kind of innocently or or on a very small scale, uh, mostly with accessories um, and things that weren't necessarily like a full-on transforming toy There were a couple of watershed kind of moments uh, That I will throw out to you guys Just so you kind of get a feel for like how long this has been going on um, There are at least in my head a couple of uh, signature kind of milestones These aren't the only milestones in third party and, and Bill, you may have your own milestones too as we talk through it But uh, uh, the first one that really kind of like went to a different level that wasn't just uh, guns and swords and things like that. Very simple, uh, one-piece molded you know, items and accessories. Uh, a big one was uh, the City Commander armor set that was made by Fans Project, and that was uh, done to graft onto the classics uh, Optimus Prime slash Ultra Magnus mold and make him a fully armored uh, Ultra Magnus that came out in 2008 so that is 10 years old now
1: yeah and that was Wait, a you know, big step yeah it was and prior to that dance project had uh, made a name for themselves doing a, a set that was a a more cartoon accurate cliff jumper head for the classics mm-hmm. cliff mm-hmm. jumper toy and it came with uh a, some other guns and things but it was a uh, not just a single piece it was the the head and it was also painted uh, which was a, a level of, uh, I guess, craftsmanship that we hadn't really seen in the market before. Mm-hmm. Up until then, it was, yeah, solid resin cast, what you know, one piece things, not, uh, not a, a fully realized commercial project product with packaging and the like. Mm-hmm, for sure. So, yeah, and I think that was two thousand six, maybe, that that came out. And yeah, then, like the
0: cliff jumper and stuff. So, yeah, definitely, yeah. definitely. Uh, started they definitely kind of hung their hat on the uh, Augmenting Classics toys yeah Um, so the second one uh, came a little bit later only a few years later and it gives you an idea of kind of the acceleration of things the exponential kind of growth of things is that in uh, late 2011 uh, which was um, seven years ago uh, TFC released Hercules which uh, wasn't the only third-party combiner at the, at the time. Lots of things were kind of happening uh, at the same time. But in, in late 2011, we had um, this full-on uh, Devastator, third-party Devastator on a very large scale, big enough to uh, kind of work with classics toys. Uh, Maybe a little small for masterpiece-scale displays, but uh, you could push it. Uh, but this was certainly on a scale and, and at a, at a total price point that was unheard of. Yeah. And, and again, that was going from, uh, like we say, like simple one piece casted, uh, accessories, uh, a few years later, it was armor sets a few years later. Here we are. We're already into full on combiner sets that are in total costing people hundreds of dollars
1: yeah well and in between that again there were there were also uh there was the warbotron released their sort of springer mm-hmm. uh uh mold was one of them and there were also uh some add-on pieces for some of the uh energon combiners
2: mm-hmm. that
1: had, had done well uh but yeah the 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 devastator war was a, a huge leap beyond that uh we ended we ended up going from like I said, like one little figure that was kind of rough hewn to suddenly polished plastic and enormous and way more expensive and way more numerous. And, uh, the other thing about the combiners, which were interesting was that they were released, you know, one, one bot at a time and no one really had any idea if for sure, if Hasbro Mm. or Takara or somebody was going to step in and, you know, you'd have. Three or four out of the Devastator, <laughs> and they would cut it into it before you got the, the full package. It, it was uh, it was certainly an interesting uh, interesting twist on the market.
0: Yeah, for sure. And, and if you were two or three figures in, you'd be two or three hundred dollars right. uh, into a set. So of course, eventually Hasbro did jump into that. Takara did jump into that. Okay, last thing uh, before we jump in, Bill. I thought that I would take a peek at one of the big. And and pretty bad uh, in a good way. Uh, online transformer stores—they're you know they're big and uh, bad, and they have quite a bit of third-party product on their site, just to give us a feel for like <laughs> what is today. Uh, so just a couple of numbers to throw out: if you go to this uh, site's uh, third-party page, and most transformer uh, online stores have a third-party section now, of course, um, there are 80. Uh, listed uh, third-party makers on their page. And in total, according to the listings, there are 765 uh, individual product listings under these 80 third-party makers. So 80 third-party makers over 750, over 760 uh, product listings. That is a lot of product as of uh, fall, late summer 2018. That's where we're at today. So, uh, so yeah, Bill, uh, we we've come a long way in ten years, and now it, it's um, it is firmly entrenched. Yeah, third party offers uh, unlicensed, unendorsed products uh, at all scales now, and all kinds of complexities. And so, um, so that's it. I mean, that is the background on on this uh, phenomenon. It's it's uh, until it goes away, it, it feels like it's a it's a staple. Uh, Of the of the hobby, and it also feels like Transformers kind of was definitely one of the maybe one of the um, one of the toy lines and fandoms that was uh, on the uh, the vanguard of third party. Or it certainly seems like this this in particular toy line maybe attracted. uh, people with an engineering mind and kind of a proclivity to do this kind of stuff. So it seems like uh, w- when it comes to third party transformers is for sure one of the uh, more heavily uh, influenced and affected uh, communities. Um, that said, uh, we did want to just kind of have at least our first discussion about this uh, to be kind of broad and, and, and more kind of more of a fundamental uh, kind of discussion, talking about the the basics and the bread and butter uh, aspects of, of IP. So Bill, I'll turn it over to you and uh, let you uh, guide us through uh, the basics.
1: Well, thanks, John. Uh, so the the first basic premise uh, to understand when dealing with intellectual property is, is that it's a, it's a legal construct. and which that means you're dealing with a product that is a multinational product uh, they being, You know, designed in, they might be designed in the United Kingdom or Japan or China. They may be engineered in China and and manufactured there and then packaged somewhere else in China and then shipped. And they may be going through a number of countries on their way to shipping. And then they're sold wherever they're sold, whether that's in the US or Europe or, you know, Japan. Uh, And every one of these countries it passes through has its own set of rules and laws for intellectual property. And so when I'm talking about intellectual property, I'm going to stick to things in kind of a broad sense rather than get into technical specifics, because the technical specifics wouldn't be the same for most of these things. Like any given product you're dealing with is going to have gone through a different set of hoops. It's going to have a different set of rules that apply to it, Uh, and. So in some ways, that's that's one of the big reasons why you see a lot of these companies getting away with some of the stuff they get away with is because it's really tricky. <laughs> There's a lot involved in tracking down. If you were a Hasbro or Takara and you're like, hey, wait a minute, that looks a lot like our product. There's a lot involved to trying to stop it. And so uh, I, I want to talk kind of at a, at a top level as to what you're looking at so you at least can get a sense of the vocabulary and uh, the types of law that are involved. Mm -hmm. But keep in mind, those specific laws are going to be different from place to place. Um, So uh, in intellectual property, what you're talking about is a protection, uh, a a personal right uh, that someone possesses over an idea or an expression of an idea. So these are not physical things. They are intellectual things. They are designs or methods or names of things, uh, theoretically even a smell. So, which sounds crazy, but it's out there.
0: It's happening.
1: <laughs> so uh, I- I'm going to kind of go over the difference between an idea and, ex- and an expression as well, because that's that's part of it. But um, I'll, I'll start sort of with the four types because there are four types of intellectual property protection, and you'll you'll hear them brought up uh, often incorrectly. But the four types are trade secret, patent, copyright, and trademark. Uh, and uh, with the last two, possibly interchanging, that's kind of the order of complexity that they go in. Trade secret is really simple. When it comes to transformers, it's not going to come up. But basically, it's the law that says, if you sneak into someone's, uh, place of business and steal some secret technology from them, you can't then use it. Uh, Hmm. it's pretty simple. They can Hmm. sue you to stop you and stop you from profiting off of having snuck in and stolen the secret information, whether Mm -hmm. it's a customer list or whatever, that's not really relevant here. (laughs) Uh, It might be, but you know, it's not something we're ever really going to see as consumers. Uh, so the next is patent, and you see people say patent a lot, but patent actually doesn't come up very much uh, in in when you're talking about third-party toys. A patent is is a protection of an idea, but uh, that that idea is usually a, a technological uh, sort of concept, um, and it has to be a new idea. So, for example, with a patent, you could theoretically protect the idea of a toy robot that turns into a toy truck, a toy robot reconfigurable into a toy truck. Now, if you tried to file that today, the patent office would say, well, a patent has to be something new. Requirement of all patents is they have to be new, novel, and non obvious. And they would say, someone has already invented a toy robot that is reconfigurable into a toy truck. So we're not going to let you have that. But if for some reason, no one else had ever come up with that. Then anything that description applies to that idea applies to would be covered. So if I came up with ultra Magnus, he's covered. He's a toy robot that turns into a toy truck. If hmm. I come up with pipes, he's a toy robot that turns into a toy truck. If I come up with uh, you know, GoBots Ranger toy, robot, toy truck, close enough. So anything that's covered by that broad concept is protected by the patent. And the patent is pretty powerful as an enforcement tool, but it only lasts for about 15 years, 10 or 15 years, depending on how it goes uh, and where you're filing it and a bunch of other things. But basically a a little more than a decade and that patent, then whatever you patented becomes public domain. So that means that if someone else that 10 years later says, I'm going to make it, toy robot that turns into a toy truck, and you say, I have a patent, they can say, well, your patent has expired, so I get to make one too. It's public domain. So that's why you don't hear much of that. There is, however, within the realm of patents, something we call a, a design patent. And a design patent is a patent that applies to the manufacture of an industrial article, the appearance of an industrial article. So that would be, for example, I used to do this for for Nike a lot. Nike would produce a, a shoe, and the shoe would have a certain design, and they don't want anyone else to copy that design, so they would patent the design. And the patent is very powerful for going after somebody who does copy that design. In Transformers, it would mean that you would have a design on, say, Optimus Prime, and someone else copies as a knockoff of Optimus Prime, you can stop them. But the limitation is the design patent only covers exactly what you patent. Hmm. So if I had a design patent on generation one Optimus Prime, that would not stop someone who made Masterpiece Prime.
2: Hmm.
1: In fact, if I had a patent on Masterpiece Prime, that wouldn't stop someone who made MP10 because they are different designs, even though they're the same character and they look the same and they're designed, you know, to do the same things they're not exactly the same. Hmm. And so uh, a design patent is, has not been a part of Hasbro's strategy uh, for protecting transformers usually, but the uh, Takara actually has done quite a few design patents. Uh, the most recent I saw uh, was on classics Astro Train. They did a, a, I came across that while working on a, a case for Microsoft that had nothing to do with toys, but uh it basically only protects classics astro train so the mm-hmm. new the new astro train the headmaster and all that
2: mm-hmm.
1: nothing that wouldn't get you anything for that it would only protect you against an exact duplicate so it's very it's a very easy tool to enforce if you're an attorney and you come across a knockoff and you have a design patent you can a knockoff being an exact copy you could you know, that case, you can knock that out of the park. That's a super easy case. You mm. probably won't even have to go to court, uh, because the damages on in patent infringement are also very huge. So <laughs> meaning that if I, if they sue you for infringing a patent, we get tons of money out of you. Mm. Uh, and so design patents were used by, by Takara, but have not Hasbro hasn't really seen much use for them. Uh, and again. There, you know, a few different reasons for that. It's it's a little more expensive than some other approaches, and and uh, but also at the end of that time period, it becomes public domain. So, there, you know, are issues with it. You know, you don't want it to you don't want your design to be officially acknowledged as being public domain at the end of that at the end of that patent period. So you might not want to patent it if it's something that you might be able to sell ten years from now or fifteen years from now as as a uh, sort of nostalgia toy, like we do with a lot of the generation one models. Um, so when people say patent, that's what, that's all that refers to. Hmm. And so when you talk about patents and third party toys, it's almost never the case patents don't really come up much in third party toys, because you have to, like I said, copy the exact thing and that just doesn't happen. So it, it happens with knockoffs, knockoffs. If you have a design patent, those guys are in trouble. Uh, but generally, uh, like I said, Hasbro doesn't go after design patents because they have other, other protection strategies, which I'll, I'll get to in a little bit, but, uh, but that's what patent covers only that exact thing. And only the, the sort of general and general technology, uh, you might see patents in toys when they come up with things like new, a new ratchet design or a new joint, uh, for example, if you watch mm. the toys that made us, they had that great Barbie episode and in the barbie episode they talked about one of the creators the guy who created the little model the figure model mm-hmm. for barbie became a, a bazillionaire because he you know got mattel to give him a little bit of money every time they used that patent <laughs> and so every barbie he got a few cents on and was you know making quite a bit of money for you know having basically just designed one figure but uh, uh but in general. Uh, we're talking about transformers stuff you're not really gonna patent is really almost never going to be the answer for what you're talking about intellectual property wise um so the next issue uh and and what's a little more involved is what we call copyright copyright is a protection for not an idea but an expression and the difference is if i talk about Uh, I have a superhero and he can fly and has a cape and shoots lasers out of his eyes and he comes from the planet Krypton and all this other stuff. I'm talking about Superman, right? But if I talk about a superhero who can fly and comes from an alien planet, shoots lasers out of his eyes, that is an idea. Superman is the expression of that idea. So... Mm -hmm. That's why you can see something like, uh, you know, Captain Marvel or uh, Hyperion is, is basically Marvel comics version of Superman. He's almost identical in every respect, but, you know, he's, you know, got the serial numbers filed off. They're able to do that because while Superman is a copyrighted expression of that idea, DC doesn't have a doesn't have the idea. They don't own the idea. They own the expression of that idea. So you can tell the same story different ways, and it may be a similar story, but if it's a unique expression of it, then that is, is a different thing. And so that's why you have uh, that's where copyright comes in. Um, so copyright is control over basically who can copy. Your expression and that that's really where a lot of this stuff leans on so within the right to controlling what's a copy of your expression you also have sort of wiggle room what they call derivative works and so when I say Superman is covered by copyright Superman isn't covered by copyright because he in itself is not an expression he is a character in a story that story is the actual expression of the idea so Mm -hmm. By having a copyright on all the different Superman stories, they've created this sort of uh, collection of things that they own, stories that they own. And when you create uh, what they call a derivative work, uh, a work that is uh, an expression, <laughs> a new expression that basically borrows from the existing expression, then you are copying within within the, the sense of the copyright that that is what we call an infringement. So mm-hmm. it, it may be a, a tolerated infringement or an allowed infringement or even a a requested and paid for infringement, but it, it it infringes the copyright. They overlap. So when we talk about patents, if I have a design patent on generation one Optimus Prime, and then I don't really have anything that covers MP1 and MP10. Right, or Optimus Prime in a cartoon, or Optimus Prime in a comic book. However, if I have a copyright on Generation One Optimus Prime, maybe I do have something that covers all those things, because all those things are designed to build upon that idea. They copy from that original expression of the the toy robot Optimus Prime, and they make a new version of that. They elaborate upon it, they create upon it. And so this is an area where you start seeing the overlap with third-party toys. So while Hasbro may have the original copyrights on, they they may have the original design rights on something like Predicate, for example, when uh, MMC introduces the Feralcons, they're really similar right they're a bunch of transforming robots that turn into the same animals and they have the same color schemes and they really look a lot alike and that's where you start seeing this this issue of hey wait a minute they are copying Mm. from Hasbro's catalog they're they're copying not not the patent right because if there was a patent patent Mm -hmm. would say it would say well it's not the same it's copyright is fuzzier you can get close enough where it becomes clearly inspired Hmm. unfortunately for hasbro (laughs) this is also where things get a bit messy Hmm. uh, because to enforce their copyright they have to go after the the person who actually created it so you can't enforce copyright against someone who owns the the product. Mm -hmm. You have to go after the person who copied it, the person, the copier, whoever made it. So you have to go after them. And then you also have to prove not only that they copied, but that they had access to the original. Part of proving they copied it is that they saw the original one. And it's not impossible. And in fact, in a a case where they so clearly overlap, you could probably get a lot of judges to go, come on. I don't really need a lot of evidence that they had access to this. I mean, clearly they must have, right? Uh, but the problem is, is it adds this extra layer of enforcement, this extra layer of here's another set of things we have to pay attorneys to do. And the, the issue with that is unlike a, a patent where I don't even have to go to court, I can just show the judge the patent and show the judge the copy. And he's like, yep, this case is over with a copyright, we have to at least sit down and I have to go through like, okay, here's what his thing looks like. Here's what my thing looks like. And here's the points of similarity. and here's... I have to go through a lot more steps. And if I'm going through all those steps as an attorney, that's costing Hasbro money. Every single extra one of those steps is going to cost them a little more. Mm-hmm. And from Hasbro's perspective, they're looking at how much money am I losing by this thing existing? Hmm. And how much is it gonna cost me to hire somebody to stop it? Hmm. And at a certain point, Hasbro looks at these two numbers and is like, This isn't worth my my time. I don't want to spend all this money to stop this one little thing. You know, they're making a few thousand bucks and it's gonna cost me probably that much to stop them from making that few thousand bucks. Hmm. And I'm not gonna make any money doing this stopping them.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: so it, it, it doesn't really it doesn't really add up but that's that's the issue with copyright copyright is is fuzzy enough to allow them to do something but not it's fuzz, also fuzzy enough to make it expensive um, now from a fan's perspective one thing i, I think is important to remember because you'll see a lot of people say oh it's an illegal thing It's not illegal in the sense that if I go and take a gun and rob a bank, right, I'm taking money from the bank, but I'm also committing a crime.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: When the knockoff, when the copyright violations occur, it's not a crime. It's more a dispute in rights between two people. So if you mow your neighbor's lawn for a long time and he doesn't want you trespassing, like the police don't come over and arrest you for mowing his lawn, your neighbor says, "Stop that, or I will sue you." <laughs> and so, and he he should do that because if you mow his lawn long enough and act as the owner, eventually you can you know become the owner. So that's adverse possession. That's another fun legal concept for you. But, <laughs> um, but anyway, you can you you can sue somebody to stop that. That it's basically a trespass. You can sue someone to stop it. And so Hasbro has the right to sue somebody to stop them from violating their copyright. But conversely, they don't have the obligation to do that. So just because they see something that violates their, that infringes their copyrights, it does not oblige them to sue. And if they don't feel like doing it, the question is whose job is it to do that? And I, I, I as a fan my answer is not mine <laughs> <laughs> it's not my job to do it but uh, it, it's certainly I, I can understand uh, the trepidation a lot of fans feel on, on that that kind of stuff and, and it, there's there's certainly something shady about it uh, it's it's not theirs and it's clearly uh, a an infringement and it's clearly them profiting off of someone else's work. But at the same time, it's up to Hasbro and Takara to, to assert those rights. Those are not our rights. They're not anyone else's rights and they are allowed to not assert them if they don't feel like it. Um, and, and so, as I said, copyright is kind of a fuzzy business. Mm-hmm. So it may be that uh, some of the copyright violations, they just they don't want to enforce for example a great example is the transformers wiki transformers wiki is so much fun i assume everyone who is a fan has been there has read it and seen it you know kind of flipped through some of the articles and that's great transformers wiki uses a lot of stuff that is copyrighted to hasbro and they don't necessarily have explicit permission for all of it or Mm -hmm. possibly even any of it i don't know and so, those are also technically infringing. Sure. But again, it's not it's not a, an issue that Hasbro is required to stop them. It would cost them money to stop them. It would not get them anything good if they stopped them. And so they don't. Uh, and so that that's that's the issue with copyright. As I said, it's it's fuzzy. It's a uh, uh, the nice thing about copyright if you. Or a copyright owner is that it lasts a really long time, hmm. uh, like 120 years. You can keep protecting this stuff. So everyone will have probably forgotten everything about Transformers by the time the Transformers copyrights all just naturally go away. <laughs> <laughs> no one will care. <laughs> but uh, but for for Hasbro's sake, like they can still defend if they choose to they can still defend classic Optimus Prime. They can still defend the original stories and the original expressions of that idea of the conflict on Cybertron and everything else. Uh, they can still use those and monetize those and, and, and uh, protect them against things that they do care about, um, but they are not required to do that in order to maintain those rights. And I make that point because the next thing Yes, is the one you talked about, which was trademark Mm -hmm. and trademark, uh, has the distinction of being something that must be defended. Mm. If you do not defend your trademark, you will lose it. Uh, so a trademark, uh, is an expression of source. And by that, I mean by looking or perceiving a trademark, it is anything that can be perceived that indicates the origin of a good or a service. So if you can smell it or see it or touch it, or somehow sense it. And when you do so, you have an idea of where that product came from or who, who has authorized it. That's a that's something that could be a trademark. Hmm. So uh, in that case, we're talking about things like the name transformers. When you see, something that says transformers on it, or somebody is talking about transformers, or you you hear a slogan in a commercial and they say, transformers, your association as a consumer is, this is something that came from Hasbro. Hasbro must have approved this message or Takara or whoever is owning the, the trademark in your area, you say, they must have approved this message. This product that they are advertising to me must be a product that they are somehow associated with. They are the origin of those goods or services. And uh, in theory, anything can be a trademark, but typically we're mostly talking about visual things. Uh, so we're mostly talking about names and we're talking about uh, symbols. Uh, you, you'll occasionally hear somebody say they, you know, uh, copyrighted copy wrote <laughs> uh, a name or copy wrote a word uh, that is not a thing uh, what they really are usually talking about in that instance is, is a trademark hmm. and importance in a trademark is that the trademark is identifying the source of goods and services so that you as a consumer know that when you go out and buy coca-cola it came from the coca-cola corporation it's probably going to taste the same as the last thing you bought that they put that same name on Uh, It's uh, one of the classic examples of the importance of trademark in the marketplace is ivory soap, uh, which until ivory soap came along, soap just was sold kind of without trademark. It was a giant block of fat and lye that you would go to the, the pharmacy and they would slice off a chunk of it. And if you've ever had that kind of soap, one end of it is really strong in the fat and it's really kind of greasy and slimy. So if you wash yourself off with that, you're not going to get super clean. It's going to be kind of gritty and gross.
2: And the other end
1: is mostly lye. And so if you get a side, get on the side of the soap, that's mostly lye, then you're going to get like, it's going to sting. It kind of burns your skin a little bit uh, when you, when you wash off with it. And that's just how soap came for centuries. And ivory soap, uh, became famous because the, the creators of Ivory Soap figured out a an industrial process, which they patented, <laughs> that allowed them to mix the lye and the fat very evenly. And so their soap was white, was the same white color all the way through. It wasn't the kind of yellow-white that you get with really fat-heavy. It wasn't the clearish hmm. color you get when it's mostly lye. It was the same even white all the way through. And so they told people, buy Ivory Soap because ivory soap is mixed evenly all the way through. It's a patented process. And so people knew if you went to the, to the drugstore and you asked for soap, you might get anything. But if you asked for ivory soap, you knew you were getting the one produced with that patented process, and it would eat, you wouldn't get burned, you wouldn't get greasy. <laughs> that is the nature of trademark. It's, mm-hmm. it's providing you with a, a guarantee of who these goods came from, who approved them, what, what, what they're all about. And so when you talk about Transformers, that's where you start seeing things that are, uh, you'll start seeing the names on the characters. Uh, we'll say Optimus Prime is a trademark. Mm-hmm. And you know if it, something says Optimus Prime on it, Hasbro had something to do with it. And you'll see that in the third party market because everything has a crazy name, right? You'll see the Feral sure. Cons, you'll see just, uh, I, I don't need, I, I, I have a hard time remembering most of the crazy names they come up with. It's usually something very Greek. Uh, <laughs>
0: sure. Or uh, my favorite, I think was uh, wrestle. I think that was a, uh, a not grapple toy at some uh, point. Yeah. They called
1: Russell. Yeah, yes. like the, uh, synonyms for, for the, for the actual name. Yes. And the reason they do that is because they, they, they don't want to infringe the trademark. You know, the trademark, as I mentioned, must be protected. And that's because, The only purpose of the trademark is to identify the origin of goods so if you let someone else use your trademark then you lose the trademark because it stops identifying your goods part of obtaining a trademark is going to the to the trademark office and saying here's my trademark here is me using it exclusively for a number of years as proof that you know i'm keeping control of it and so if you stop Stopping others from using your trademark, if you let other people use your trademark Mm
2: -hmm.
1: without giving them specific permission and controlling their distribution and all that, at least to some token degree, you lose it. And so if the third party started putting Autobot symbols on all their toys, Mm -hmm. it seems like a minor decoration, but that's a trademark. And so from Hasbro's perspective, they are suddenly risking losing their exclusive control of that symbol. Which would mean not just that the third parties could use it, but Mattel could start using it. Anyone could start using it because it's no longer theirs. So they have to stop other people from doing that. And that's a that's a, a big key to understanding why the third party market does some of the things it does. Uh, why they, you know, we'll get right up to like you know this is suggestive this is like the names get really close but they're never gonna be right on the on the, the head with that because if they do they risk hasbro saying wait a minute we can't let them do that because we hmm. have to protect our trademark or lose it and uh, trademarks if they are maintained last indefinitely so so hmm. long as you are the only person using it you can keep it forever which makes it one of the most valuable pieces of intellectual property uh, that there is. Uh, one of my uh, <laughs> professors in school once said, Coca-Cola Corporation, if you burned down every physical asset they had, but they still owned the name Coca-Cola and all the rights to the symbols and everything, they would still be worth billions of dollars mm-hmm. just for the, the brands and the symbols and the, and the names. Uh, and and that's that's the case with uh, with transformers as well. Like they own the rights to a lot of things that are way more valuable than the things that they go on sell for today. So if they lost all the rights to everything else, still kept all the names, they would still have a pretty solid uh, portfolio to you know borrow against. And so that's why you see with third party, they never come out with third party toys that have the the Autobot symbol or the Decepticon symbol on it. They never come out and say, "Hey, this is a Transformers thing." They always avoid on on their advertising, on their sales pages, saying, "You know, hey, this is our version of Grimlock or this is our version of of Rodimus Prime," because the minute they cross that line, they step out and and make themselves a target that must be addressed. They go from being something that Hasbro or Takara has the option to address to becoming something they must address or risk losing rights. And uh, so that that's kind of the, the difference there between the copyright and the trademark. Um, the trademark, uh, much like uh, uh, copyright, has a little bit of, of fudge room as well, um, but they don't have to enforce it quite so uh, liberally as they do the exact thing. So for example, if you have transformers and someone starts selling a toy that's called transforms, it's fuzzy. Uh, the standard there is what is confusing to the relevant consumer. And, uh, (laughs) so consumer confusion runs the gamut, uh, Hasbro, uh, has, uh, a lot of room on that uh, to argue either way. If it's in their favor and they don't want to do anything, they can say, oh, it's not exactly the same. It's not a problem that we have to worry about. If they want to really hammer somebody, though, who got too close, uh, they can say, well, wait a minute. The consumer for our product is children. And children, they're not that smart. So if your name is even remotely close, that could confuse a small child. Therefore, we can get you Hmm. Um, so trademark is is a a, it's a powerful enforcement tool. uh, But fortunately for third parties, it's generally one they can easily avoid. All Hmm. they have to do is avoid the the big symbols and the uh, the the names and they do a pretty thorough job of of evading both of those things. Certainly the the um, the names get very creative. Uh, and, uh, Hasbro has some leeway to let people get away with things. I think you see, uh, uh, I'm, I'm not sure what their, their official stances with something like toy hacks who produces Mm. reproduction. symbols. uh, I, yeah, I've, I've often found that interesting. Uh, It's possible that they, uh, they just said, you know, it's a reproduction symbol, but they're not selling it they're not using the symbol to sell the symbol. It's just they're selling the symbol, but they're using their own toy hacks things. So the, the symbols that they're selling are not being uh, officially used in commerce as trademarks. So if they can make sort of a, a thin claim that it's you know, not officially being used in commerce as a trademark, even though you're selling something that is essentially the trademarked symbol Maybe, uh, um, <laughs> it's also possible that they just, uh, you know, said, you know, we're going to give you guys permission Yeah. because again, all they have to do is, is, uh, control the mark.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so if they're controlling the mark, it doesn't matter how they do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I had a, a client, uh, who found somebody who was, uh, knocking off one of their products, but not as a, not as a, they were electronics they they were not knocking off the actual product, they were making like a soap that -hmm. looked like the product. It had their Mm -hmm. logo on it. And their logo was on a piece of soap and they were like, we don't sell soap. We don't know why anyone would want soap with our logo on it. But you know what? If somebody's doing that, we don't want to like be in the newspaper as the guys who sued you. (laughs) (laughs) So send us a dollar and we will sell you a permission to like use our logo on soap for a dollar. Interesting. And she did that. She said for the dollar, <laughs> that was the end of it. They had sold permission. It was official. Everything was fine. You know, so there's it, a lot of approaches that can, can be done there with, with, uh, with trademarks. But, but again, the, the goal, the, the, the heart of trademarks is something that identifies something a, a, as a good or a service that comes from the same source and anything that can do that can qualify. So, uh, names and symbols are usually the, the big ones we see. And, and like I said, that's, that's where you see it in the, in the third party is the, the crazy names and the, the lack of, of the Autobot and Decepticon symbols.
0: Yeah. You can see the, uh, the line that they won't yeah. cross. It's yeah. pretty, pretty, uh, pretty obvious, I guess that, that there's some taboos, I guess. And like I said, line, uh, it's, a, it's interesting Bill, to, to think of trademark is, uh, it's a very powerful tool it's also uh effectively a financial commitment to the to the trademark holder because of that kind of obligation to defend it or it could be a potentially yeah. a, uh, a big or, or significant financial uh commitments for as long as they want um well,
1: and they have to they have to continue using it to maintain it that's mm-hmm. another aspect it's mm-hmm. not just mm-hmm. that they have to defend it but they must keep using it so if uh, someone stops using a trademark for a number of years, they lose their exclusive control over it. Hmm. Uh, I uh, I had a client that would uh, they had one trademark that they were really that the owner was really devoted to, and so they it was not typically very useful or profitable. It was it belonged to an old brand from like the 40s or 30s or something and. But the owner, like his grandparents, had come up with it and he was very like emotionally attached to you know, keeping that in the portfolio.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So every few years they would trot out, they would just trot out some little product that they would run for a little while, it'd be a special event, and they would do something just so they would keep using it. Mm-hmm. And it was never profitable again. It was never <laughs> it was never useful to the brand overall strategically. But They just really really wanted to hold on to it and so they would bring it back as kind of like a nostalgia item in in, you know some of their their establishments every few years just so they could hold on to it and uh so uh you've seen that some in the transformers world as well where trademarks have kind of passed uh where you see something like jazz for example which they were able to protect on some of the older products Mm -hmm. and then later they found out they were not allowed to Have exclusive use of jazz anymore, so they put Autobot Jazz uh, and some of those uh, sort of slight changes, Um, and that's that's the reason they you see some of those names will will alter like that because they uh, sometimes they just they can't get the old name again because someone else has started using it. Uh, Bumblebee actually was off limits for a while because there was a, a competing product. It wasn't even a the transformers product or a similar boys product i think it was like a from a line of toddlers toys or something that had it was preventing them from using bumblebee for a number of years and so they they had to wait for that one to sort of expire so that they could you know scramble after it again to reclaim it uh you know for their own Mm -hmm. having not used it for many years
0: so this is amazing this is an amazing overview. I do have one, like, closing uh, question before we wrap this episode of the minicast, and I, I really doubt this is going to be the last uh, mini cast on IP. But um, what do you think, Bill, is the, uh, um, I, I guess, how do I want to say this? Given given uh, given what you know and given, given the spectrum of IP that you kind of laid out and the, you um, the fact that third parties kind of had 10 years, uh, Takara Hasbro and third party have had 10 years of coexisting to some degree. Do you think that they have settled into, uh, a stable coexistence or do you anticipate at some point, some, uh, something uh, in Hasbro and Takara will, uh, change the relationship or their kind of their, their stance, their position on letting third party kind of exist. Um, I mean, what's your, what's, your, what's your forecast or what's your feeling on, on the world of third-party and first-party um, over time?
1: It's difficult to say because the, there are a lot of different factors that could, could come up. Uh, generally, the third-party manufacturers, as uh, big as some of them get, are still comparatively sort of drops in the bucket. Of profitability for something like Hasbro, and unless they are directly competing, which they're not really, they they're competing in sort of these uh, small markets like the the online toy stores and things, but they're not really, you know, on the shelves in Walmart and that sort of thing. Uh, they're not really much of a, a, a threat to the the profitability of Hasbro's regular product base, um, if Somehow they were to uh, grow exponentially and become an issue, uh, then certainly you, you would see them start to take more of an interest in stopping it. But at the moment, the the cost of stopping them vastly outweighs the benefits of stopping them, um, mm-hmm. and and that that can that can change with a bunch of different factors. The biggest that I, I think I would see would be. Uh, Foresee would be the movie stuff. Uh, typically, mm. the movie companies are much, much uh, stricter in their view on intellectual property. They tend to be very aggressive uh, and, and they tend to want to aggressively protect uh, what they consider their investment in those mm. things. And you're starting to see now more movie line products in development from these third party guys. Mm -hmm. And it is possible that Hasbro's agreements with the movie production companies might be leveraged to compel them to take action where it would be otherwise not particularly profitable for them to do so. Interesting. So, and I say that because I've, I've seen, you know, I've been to conventions where like paramount was walking around handing out cease and desist letters to (laughs) you know star trek fans who were producing (laughs) like unlicensed star trek stuff wow uh yeah and 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 so it it can happen uh and they it generally is somebody just high up decides wait a minute we can't tolerate this this is too much (laughs) and they don't you know, they stop weighing whether it's profitable, whether it's a good PR move and that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And, uh, so that would be my guess if something bad happens, my guess is that's the avenue it will come from. Mm -hmm. Uh, because otherwise, uh, generally third party toys, like I said, they're, they're really small customer base in the grand scheme of things. Mm -hmm. And they're not really impacting Hasbro's sales that much. Uh, mm. I mean, there are a few people I've spoken to online who collect only third party toys, but they're generally not the customers Hasbro would be seeing a lot of business from anyway. So, uh, there are people who would, if they weren't buying third party Hasbro toys would probably be buying like soul of Chocogin, you know, high end collector stuff anyway.
2: Yeah.
1: So you're not looking at a uh, big, loss on hasbro's end and if they're not going to see the money back then it's not worthwhile to them to invest in a lawsuit to shut down somebody who's making you know side sidebar products third party products Mm -hmm.
0: fascinating 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 uh guys and gals dear listeners if you have questions you probably do have questions uh for bill Uh, The best way to ask us, and we can answer them on a uh, future minicast, is to tweet us. You can tweet us at TFRadio on Twitter, or you can email us, uh, contact at tfradio.net. You can also uh, ask your question at tfradio.net. We have a contact form. So uh, tweet us, email us, fill out the form on uh, tfradio.net. Any of those will get your question read and uh, answered on a future minicast. Uh, Bill, before we go, uh, remind everybody, um, what you do and how can they, um, come into contact with Bill Ray on social media?
1: Absolutely. Well, uh, when I'm not blathering on about intellectual property stuff, uh, I, uh, write fantasy series called Tales of the Varen Empire under my nom de plume, which is actually William Ray. Uh, my friends call me Bill, but uh, uh, if you look me up on Amazon, it's under William. Uh, Gedland is the first book, which was named to Kirkus Review's Best Books of 2016. It's a sort of fantasy version of the Victorian British Empire taking on an ancient lich and his army of the undead. We've got a second book in the same setting as well, which is more of a more detective story about a cult that kidnaps an engineer as part of their plot to bring back the elves uh for more information on my stories uh my website is baronempire.com and you can find me at baron empire on twitter as well as facebook uh you can find my work on amazon and paperback kendall and kendall unlimited and if you buy it through rfc's link you'll be supporting the show at the same time
0: awesome bill thank you very much uh hey another thing you guys can do uh, to support the show, to support uh, the mini cast, uh, conversations like this that uh, I just had with Bill, uh, you can uh, wear a shirt, buy a shirt from one of our shows. Um, go to shirtsickle.com, that's like popsicle, but shirtsickle.com, and look for the TF Radio store. Yeah, there's a link on our website. Uh, there are about 10 styles right now, sizes small to 5XL, so very accommodating. Um, There are Transformer-inspired and uh, robot-collecting, geekery-inspired designs uh, uh, of all types, uh, nostalgia-based and um, original designs. Uh, You'll find something that you'll like, I'm sure. It's uh, shirtsickle.com, shirtsickle.com slash tfradio if you want to go right to our store. And uh, we appreciate it. So for Bill Ray, this is John DeLuna. We will see you on the next RFC minicast. Music provided by bensound.com.